Hello, I'm Bridget Harvey and I'd like to welcome you to Getting Making, a podcast exploring how we make things, collect them, live with them, work with them and care for them. Danielle Tom is a curator, writer and broadcaster and lecturer. She has a dual focus on contemporary craft and design and 18th century sculpture and decorative arts. She's currently curator at the Design Museum, but she was previously curator of making at the Museum of London and an assistant curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She works to locate objects and images in their wider social and cultural contexts, so from erotic prints and political pots to 3D scanning and funeral monuments, and she endeavours to engage diverse audiences to make craft, art and history relevant and accessible to all. I really wanted to speak to her to get a curator's perspective on care, particularly as I came to know her work through her curation of London Making Now, where she collected together examples of some of London's um, best contemporary makers for display at the Museum of London. So um, welcome, Danielle. Thank you for chatting with me. Um, I wanted to ask you to start with, what brought you to curation as a career? Well... I took quite a roundabout route and in some respects I suppose quite a traditional route in that I I studied history at university and I went on to do postgraduate work, um, a master's and a PhD in art history and during that time I did some volunteering with, with local museums and it was actually my original intention once I embarked on the PhD to pursue sort of a career in in academia, in university, Mm. teaching, lecturing and research. Mm. And as I got towards the end of my PhD, I I started thinking a bit more broadly about the paths that were open to me and also looking at the the state of the academic job market and balking somewhat at that. And I realised that having studied art history, I was in, in some respects, a fortunate position because I could parlay that into kind of a research-oriented path but because the nature of what I had been researching was enmeshed with visual and material cultures, I was in a position maybe to work with objects themselves. Yeah. yeah. And that ultimately was the path I chose. Um, I actually had, prior to the roles that you mentioned in your introduction, I had an even earlier museum job at the National Army Museum in Chelsea. Um, that was for a year in between finishing my master's and starting my PhD and I was a very very junior curator in their archives department Mm. Um, in hindsight I think I was just very very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and get that job because that was the the proverbial foot in the door yeah I'm sure everyone knows it's always easier to progress once you've got that first bit of experience um, sort of under your belt as it were, funny looking back because you know everything that the kind of the British Army stands for is pretty much antithetical to my own personal yeah, yeah. kind of politics and and my background uh, as well. I'm uh, born in Belfast. Yeah, um, Army has a bit of a checkered history there. Yeah, um, but be that as may, it, it was still actually a very warm and welcoming working environment yeah. and a good introduction to the kind of basic tenets of curating. Yeah, and then. When I was finishing up my PhD, I had, oh, I've lost count of how many job interviews yeah. for uh, for curatorial roles and eventually got onto what was then known as the Assistant Curator Development Programme at the VNA. It doesn't mm. exist anymore. Um, but at the time, they recruited for assistant curators on a five-year ruling contract basis. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a bit of a, f- a funny programme in some respects because 
although it was it was very competitive um, because it was a very well regarded program, and so it was usually the case that people accepted onto the program had graduate degrees many of them had prior experience so it was ostensibly entry level but not really yeah. in practice but despite that and the, despite the fact that most of the people hired had existing you know expertise uh, or subject specific knowledge um you tended to be assigned to an area of the museum's collection that didn't necessarily reflect your prior expertise yeah so my PhD was on 18th century print culture, satirical prints, and um, their role in the sort of formation of the bourgeois public sphere in 18th century London. And when I joined the V&A, I was offered a place on the programme, but I was told that the place would be in the sculpture department. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I'd, I'd never worked on sculpture yeah. directly before. Yeah. I had very little prior knowledge of it. Um I mean, I took the job because the museum sector is also not exactly replete with um, opportunities. And that was the first point at which I began to diverge from my original intention of being a specialist in 18th century print. I I realised that in order to make the segue a bit more natural, it, it would make sense to look for ways in which I could combine my existing expertise with this new area that I had an opportunity to learn about. And so I ended up doing some research into the representation of sculpture in print. Um, oh, wow. Which was yeah. actually really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. That was actually what brought me to writing about 18th century erotica. Yeah. Because a lot of, you know, naughty prints in that period um, are kind of dressed up in the guise of, of neoclassicism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were some... Um, lots you know, of drapery. Uh, lots of drapery, or not drapery, as yeah. the case may be. Um, and there are prints playing on the, the ancient Greek myth of Pygmalion yeah. and Galatea. You know, Pygmalion, the sculptor, breathes life into his perfect marble woman, yeah. and she comes to life, and he marries her, and there are lots yeah. of pornographic renditions of that. Anyway, um, and then just to sort of wrap up this, this pathway um, yeah. description... When I was at the V&A, I was actually seconded to work on a project. Um, I co-curated a pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale yeah. in 2016 uh, with another uh, V&A curator. And that looked at um, the role... So it wasn't a national pavilion. It was a kind of V&A collaborative pavilion yeah. with the Biennale team. And that was um, a, a sort of an exhibition and an intervention considering the role of digital copying as a technique for preserving heritage at risk. Yes. So we had a section dedicated to the history of the copy as yeah. an item. So uh, exhibiting pieces from the V&A's plaster cast collection, yeah. for example, photographic, you know, early photographic reproductions, yeah. um, electroplating. And the other sort of key section of this pavilion was one in which we invited uh, a number of artists, activists, you know, craftspeople, all of whom were engaging in different ways yeah. with digital preservation yeah. um, to showcase yeah. their works. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And that was really my first step into working on uh, contemporary yeah. material. Um, and then when I moved to the Museum of London as curator of making, I think... It was quite fortunate because what they wanted in that role was effectively someone who could look after the existing historic collection of decorative arts, yeah. which tended to be quite 18th and early 19th century yeah. focused, but who could also address the gap in their collections around contemporary material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's um, like it was written for you, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I spent five years at the Museum of London and really, really enjoyed working yeah. there. It's a fantastic, eclectic collection. Yeah. And I'd say there are parts of the collection that are much less well known than they should be. Yeah. Than they deserve to be. I guess we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But um, yeah, while I was there, obviously, I worked on the London Making Now pro- yeah. project, which you mentioned, and, and which I'm sure we can talk about in a bit more detail. And then it was just last summer, so not even a year ago, that I moved to the Design Museum, yeah. um, where actually I'm much more exhibitions oriented now. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, that's the that's the very long winded yeah. description of the the path I took, which, as I said, was traditional in some respects, sort of in terms of academic credentialing yeah. and all that kind of thing, but. Not so much in terms of the quite roundabout route that I've yeah, taken yeah. through various specialists. Quite finishing school and saying I want to be a curator, I'll go this way. Oh yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so you said, um, sort of in your previous roles, you've been sort of working with objects or specific areas of collections, and with the design museum, um, obviously they have their own collection as well. But if you're working more in exhibitions, is that more about planning and borrowing? objects or is it also well I guess also drawing from their own collections yes um to the to the former so this, this is quite a departure for yeah. me because this is the first time that I have um inhabited a curatorial role that doesn't have specific collection yeah. responsibilities yeah. so yes the design museum does have its own collection it's quite small it's yeah. only about three thousand objects yeah. um and you know for context the v has something like three million objects yes um yeah. And even you know, the Museum of London, which is a kind of middle-sized museum, um, just a decorative arts collection that I looked after had about uh, t- just under 20,000 objects. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, difference of scale. Yeah. Um, and in theory, my own role has no connection with the permanent collection in that we have a dedicated head of collections okay. who's responsible for um, both, you know, cataloguing, uh, interpreting caring for the permanent items um and we have one permanent free gallery at the museum yeah. which um which showcases things from the permanent collection so the exhibition projects that i work on where it is appropriate to draw on our permanent collections we absolutely do do that because if nothing else it, it saves time and money yeah it makes sense um yeah. and it's, it sort of reduces the carbon impact of an exhibition yeah. because you're not having to ship anything yeah, yeah yeah but i would say that most of the objects that are shown in design museum shows are loans yeah and yeah as i said that's a bit of a departure for me and what's also a departure is that Working in an institution that is explicitly design oriented rather than say history yeah. oriented or you know, fine and decorative arts oriented yeah, yeah. means that many of the objects that we show in exhibitions are one are the types of objects that you might not typically find in most yeah. museums. Yeah. They may be more ephemeral. Yeah. Um and with that in mind there are new I have found that there are ways of working with this kind of object that I hadn't previously encountered so in my professional experience objects are the kind of the holy grail of yeah. what the museum is for and the way you handle objects and the way you document where they are moved within the building yeah. and yeah. and that kind of thing is, is subject to really stringent yeah. um, you know, best practice and I find that this is a new way of working which is not not careless not at yeah. all um we have a very professional team 
of exhibitions project managers who who oversee that with great diligence but um i think there's, there's more of a relaxed attitude towards the idea of you know purchasing an object yeah to put it on exhibition and treating it as more of a, a prop yes yeah, which is yeah. to say it's still interpreted and mounted and all the rest of it but it's not subject to the same kind of paperwork and yeah, procedures yeah the kind of rigor yeah 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 and i think that's not necessarily a bad thing it's different yeah um and i admit that when i when i first joined the design museum i you know was coming from this more um a traditionally object oriented professional background and i sort of remember seeing you know people moving objects through kind of open areas without worrying about whether the public were there or <laughs> yeah um or wrap or you know wrapping things in a particular way and i yeah. thought oh my god oh my god yeah um and i remember when i first joined the museum as i said this would be about eight or nine months ago now i sat in on a training session with colleagues on object handling and yeah. i thought well you know, i know how to handle objects yeah, yeah. i've been doing it for a long long time um but it was still really interesting to get an insight into that institution's attitude yes, to handling yeah, yeah. and also to realize that only i and maybe one other colleague actually had extensive object handling experience oh uh, yeah that's interesting yeah isn't it? and that's as i said i don't think that you know i'm trying not to assign a kind of value judgment yeah. to that it's just a different way of working yeah yeah but the design museum doesn't have conservators on staff they're yeah. hiring freelancers as needed yeah which does make sense in a way because the types of object the types of materials that they show are so broad yeah so varied, that you would need a yeah. massive conservation department yeah. with a variety of specialisms yeah on staff and it just you know, economically it doesn't make yeah. sense so we 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 um consult with freelancers yeah. on a, a more of an ad hoc basis yeah. as needed that's really interesting because that sort of um I guess it means you can get exactly the right specialist for an object at exactly the right point in time rather than sort of having people there just to as and when you need them you yeah. know, or um, those sorts of things. Yeah, you can be very kind of direct about it. I actually, um, on a side note, was watching, I think it was behind the scenes at the museum. Oh, and the V&A documentary. Not, it wasn't the V&A oh, right, one, right. it was the National Trust one. Right. So maybe, it, maybe it's called Behind the Scenes at the National Trust, <laughs> something like that. And they were, um, take, there were some uh, stone conservators taking a pot from a garden at Sissinghurst. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I mean, that object was handled in a very different way to the way I've seen objects being handled, but it's a garden object, you know, yeah. it, it had to be sort of separated from the roots that had kind of slightly attached to it sure. and those sorts of things. And um, yeah, that sort of, you know, like you say, it's, it's different best practices for different spaces yeah. and institutions, I guess. Yeah, but I think even when I moved from the V&A to the Museum of London, I mean, there was still a kind of a, a mindset shift required there yeah. because each institution has its own... Um, inbuilt assumptions about yeah. how to treat objects and best practice around objects. I remember um, one of the things that really stuck in my mind as a, as a kind of key difference between those two institutions yeah. was that at the V&A, um, conservation work was, um, I, I think, a little bit more open to intervention, um, obviously everything being reversible and documented, yeah. but intervention that in some instances, restored an object to its original appearance. Yes. Um, you know, within reason and all yeah. sort of carefully thought through, of course. Whereas the Museum of London's approach, I think informed by the fact that they have extensive archaeological collections, yeah. 
was more in favour of retaining all of these signs of breakage and yeah. obviously consolidating objects to avoid further deterioration, but yeah. they wouldn't necessarily glue a handle back onto a teacup, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, under the, you know, according to the philosophy that that's all part of the object's yeah. story. Yeah. Um, now obviously, there are, there are nuances to that, and I, I probably made it sound more, more yeah. simplistic than yeah, it actually yeah. was. But um, but it did strike me that there was that difference yeah. of approach, yeah, which was interesting. I guess it's the different stories that the museums are telling as well, mm. isn't it? The sort of, I guess, more... Uh, this is maybe not quite the right phrases, but more kind of sociological yeah. approach of the Museum of London and then with the V&A being kind of more, uh, I guess, literally objects Yes, yes, and more interested in decoration and form, so preserving the appearance of those is important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember there was an interesting example when I was there. I acquired a silver teapot um, from a a member of the public. At the V&A? No, at the 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 Museum of London, London. who donated it to us. Mm. It it had been passed down through his family, and had a really nice backstory to it, actually. So his, the the donors, I think, great, 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 great a lot of greats grandfather was a pub landlord in Mm. spitalfields Mm. in the second half of the 19th century and he was um by all accounts a kind of um you know pillar of the community yeah he um was very active i think in organizing um you know the kind of what i think they called them mutual mutual associations like the forerunners of insurance basically before the nhs you would um have a club where you'd put in like a couple of pennies a week and then yeah. if you were sick or you know if you died and somebody had to pay for your funeral yeah. it was basically a kind of collective like community yeah insurance yeah. so I think he was quite active in organizing something of that yeah. sort in the area and was sort of known for you know helping people out that kind of thing yeah. anyway um at some point he was presented with uh this silver teapot yeah. um and the people who subscribed money to buy it for him had it engraved with his name and a kind of testimonial yeah. Um, what was interesting when I, when we were looking at the hallmarks was that the teapot was presented in, I think, I think it was around 1860, if memory serves correctly, but the hallmarks of the teapot were much earlier. They were more like oh. 1818 or 19. Wow. So obviously the teapot was purchased yeah. secondhand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was still, you know, it was a very high quality piece of work, yeah. but according to the fashions of the day, it yeah. maybe had fallen out of fashion. Yeah, yeah. It was much simpler and neoclassical. Um, and I was looking at it with my colleagues in the conservation department and we agreed that um, we would give the exterior of the pot a kind of a light touch cleaning. Yeah. But what was lovely was that the inside of the pot, it had been used. Really? It wasn't just on a shelf. Yeah, yeah. It was tea stained on the inside. Oh, amazing. And we just didn't touch that. Yeah. Because that is crucially, yeah. that's part of its story because yeah. that tells you how the subject was regarded, how yeah. it was used. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know for sure, of course, but you can imagine a scenario where it's taken out for, you know, Sunday best tea yeah, yeah, yeah. if you have an yeah. important visitor. But the fact that it had that kind of physical, you know, it was a kind of a palimpsest yeah. almost, yeah, one yeah. surface covering another. Um, that to me was a great example of the Museum of London's approach, yeah. where a decision is made to not treat something because that would erase yeah. a really kind of key piece of evidence yeah. for the object's history. Yeah. And in slightly like buffing up the outside of that, you you sort of show the object to its best, but then you've got the story showing to its best by keeping that trace on the inside yeah. as well, right? So you kind of get um you get both both aspects shown 
yeah really in um in sort of from I guess a museum visitor point of view they get to see all of that yeah um, absolutely so that's really interesting because I think those um those those approaches and those the conversations that you must have in order to make those kind of decisions you know you're thinking about yeah how best to um look after the object to keep it stable and protect it you know going forwards that uh, is one element of it but also how you can kind of communicate those like lived uh particularly with i mean the uh, museum of london in particular has got a very lived in collection yes yeah, very much so yeah it, there's a lot of um what you might otherwise think of as the detritus of everyday life yeah yeah um but even detritus uh, you know what is considered trash at one point in time becomes you know important historical evidence yeah in another and I think my understanding is that archaeologically you can learn a lot from where people keep their rubbish oh yeah basically that's, that's and also like what a gold constitutes mine, really, rubbish of, of knowledge yes. what gets thrown away yeah yeah and why is yeah. very interesting yeah I mean, I mean I'm not an archaeologist but obviously at the Museum of London I worked alongside a lot of archaeologists and I learned so much from them in terms of you know, how objects can be recovered and yeah. what it means for something, how how where something is found and what yeah. it's found in proximity to yes. affects our understanding of, of what it was yeah. and how it can tell us things. Yeah. Yeah, and how it how it how it was activated, I mm, guess, at its exactly. time. So then when you have those kind of conversations, do you have to would you document that decision making? You know, would you would you make a note saying, you know, like we decided on such and such a date to do this polishing or um cleaning of the outside or, or would that be the conservator's role or do you discuss as a bigger team it would it would depend i think on the the level of intervention required mm. so something like the teapot for yeah. example was a, literally a, you know a couple of conversations yeah. between myself and one of the conservators specializing who specialized in metals yeah um I, who actually, it also happened to be the case that she's also a very good friend of mine outside yeah. work. And that probably facilitated a lot of our conversations yeah, yeah, because yeah. we could just, you know, sit down over a cup of coffee and yeah. say, what about that one? Yeah, um, yeah. Which was lovely, a really nice yeah. way to work, but I realised not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but in terms of then documenting these things more formally, um, obviously objects that were subject to any kind of conservation treatment would have that treatment documented. Yeah primarily but yes by the conservator yeah so the process of um i think you know what I, I'm, I'm going to backtrack slightly here because i've realized that that was another to my eyes at least another key difference between the vna yeah. and the museum of london was that it seemed to me at the vna that curators had far more input into the conservation decision making process Oh, interesting. And I felt that that was less the case at the Museum yeah. of London. Yeah. And I wonder why that might have been the case yeah. because, well, the VA, when I was there, and I'm sure it may have changed now, and this was just my subjective view, it was quite a hierarchical institution. Yeah. And there was certainly an attitude amongst some, by no means all, but some curators particularly some of those who'd been there a very long time that you know their authority was paramount yes yeah. and obviously you know that that's not to say that they didn't acknowledge and respect the the skills and the expertise of, of conservators yeah. who likewise were you know 
very authoritative and, and incredibly knowledgeable. But there was definitely a sense that curators, um, as I saw it, not not assistant curators, but like senior curators, had quite a lot of say over how yeah. things might be treated. Yeah. Or at yeah. least they would they would be consulted yes. uh, extensively and yeah. sometimes deferred to, not always. Whereas at the Museum of London, I think the approach from curators from a curator's perspective was a lot more hands-off yeah literally hands-off yeah 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 um and actually just the way objects were handled and stored was different between the two institutions um i did much less actual object handling at the museum of london yeah that kind of thing tended to be done by conservation and and technician staff yeah um whereas at the vna i mean Admittedly, I was an assistant curator there, so I had much more of the kind of front line. Yes, yeah, yeah, work. But even yeah. so, there was a much stronger culture of object handling by yeah. curators at the VA. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, sorry, I'm digressing, obviously. But what I was going to say was that not every acquisition that I made at the Museum of London necessarily, the, the treatment or the, you know, conservation of those objects not every not everything went through me necessarily yeah 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 but I had complete faith in my colleagues to yeah do, of course yeah and because I knew that their approach was relatively low intervention yeah and of course everything is reversible I wasn't concerned yeah that they were going to dramatically um impact how a piece could be interpreted yeah. or displayed yeah or what have you and then so then for your end of it, mm. you're thinking about how to display them, what area in the museum to display them, sort of what angle to display them at, those sorts of decisions, um, like how to kind of communicate the outwardly. Yes, so obviously we would we would have um, a great deal of input into how something might be mounted, mm. because yes, as, as you say, it might be that we want a particular angle or a particular facet of an object to mm. be more visible over another um it might be that we want to you know if something's very small for example yeah. and we want we want visitors to be able to see something up close you know that yeah. would impact the dis- the way in which it's displayed yeah and also thinking about how not just about how each object in in and of itself is displayed but how things exist in uh, proximity to one another yeah kind of that dialogue yeah. between yeah. objects and yeah. how that informs the overall context of yeah a particular display case or yeah. section or what yeah. have you yeah of course that actually um that's got to be key part of it hasn't it it's like you know what you place next to what mm. is going to alter how that is read yeah how absolutely. it's kind of viewed when i actually not long after i joined the museum of london one of the first projects i worked on there was um the the curator of uh, fashion and textiles was redisplaying um a permanent gallery which um if for you know for anyone who's been to the museum of london that's london wall which is now closed yeah. to the public yeah um there was for a long time a, a gallery called the pleasure gardens yes which you might know which yeah. is a display of 18th and 19th century historic costume yeah so being you know textiles those had to be rotated every however many years five yeah. years usually because of light levels yeah yeah so there was a complete redisplay so all of the mannequins were undressed and different historic garments were put on them yeah my role as kind of decorative art curator was to select the jewelry and other decorative accessories Ooh, lovely and it was a very yeah. nice job um that would also be um put on the mannequins yeah. along with the actual textiles and that was a really fascinating process um because 
my colleague at the time, the, the curator of fashion at that time, Tim Long, he's no longer with the museum, he had a very interesting approach whereby he imagined each mannequin as a kind of, not just as a, you know, a holding device for yeah. objects, but he assigned names and personalities oh, to them. yeah. And so he obviously se selected the various, um, you know, ensembles, gowns, yeah. coats and what have you. And so in selecting the jewellery, it was my job not just to pick things that were, you know, period appropriate, yeah. or whatever, but that actually engaged with this kind of imagined personality for each mannequin. Yes. So, yeah. for example, um, uh, the mannequin that showed a, a relatively inexpensive uh, printed cotton gown, for yeah. that I chose... Um, so a re what would have been a relatively inexpensive set of, of beaded jewellery that might have even been done at home by an amateur. Yeah, yeah. Whereas for a kind of, you know, very expensive um, sort of Spitalfield silk with yeah. all of the you know, lace trimming and everything, um, we went in a much uh, bolder direction with, um, you know, with diamond earrings and, yeah. you know, lots of gold and, yeah. and so on and so forth. So it was a really lovely way of thinking about these objects and almost imagining a new life for them. Yeah. Obviously, you know, these kind of imagined personalities didn't necessarily bear any connection to the real people who would have worn and owned these pieces of jewellery yeah. 200 years ago. Yeah. But what we were trying to do was to take the contextual knowledge that we had about these pieces of jewellery and apply that to the contextual knowledge we had of, of the garments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And try and come up with something that was a kind of, like a historically plausible fiction. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And those kind of details actually are what um, I think make, I mean, that my experience of that gallery is that it was very engaging, actually. Mm. And I think that kind of attention to and care for those things are like I think I used the word activating earlier but I yeah. always think of it as that you're kind of making them live again in a way yeah and and um trying to imbue how they would have been yeah but now I guess yeah so then when when you're charged with a job like that I think that's quite interesting as well because you're you've got a role where there's an amount already kind of set out for you and you have to, I guess, put the right, like you say, historically accurate or more or less accurate objects there. Um, and also um, to fit with the kind of personalities of the clothes, not just the right era. Yeah. But then can you also bring your own kind of style as a curator to that? Or do you think you have to sort of um, fit more with the, the bigger narrative of that gallery space? That's a really interesting question. I think, especially when it comes to objects like jewellery, which are obviously part of a, a kind of a dialogue of personal adornment. Yeah. And, and Quite also subjective. Subjective. And also, jewellery is something that uh, is often charged with a lot of emotional significance. Yes. Yeah. And I don't doubt for one minute that my decision making, not just in that project, but in others like it, was probably influenced to a degree by my personal taste. Yeah. You know, do I think this looks nice? Yeah. Yeah. I tried not to, or at least I tried to not let it be the first consideration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't doubt that it was one of the things guiding my yeah. you know, initial gut reaction. Yeah. Um, but actually that's, that's a particularly pertinent question when it comes to the work I did for the London Making Now project. Yeah which, um, as you said, was a, it was an endeavour which was um, very generously funded by the Art Fund as part of their new collecting awards scheme. Yeah. 
And what that enabled me to do was to build a kind of core collection of contemporary London-made craft. Yeah, lovely. And it was, I mean, it was a fantastic project to work on, not least because it wasn't just a question of acquiring things, but actually um, meeting with and, and having a really detailed dialogue with the individual makers. Yeah. And um, it's, I think, a project that probably could only have been done at the Museum of London or an institution yeah. like it, because it wasn't really about craft or design for design's sake. Yeah. So much as it was about craft as a manifestation of um of issues affecting London as a city yeah. so yeah. some of the things that I acquired I acquired not so much because of their form or, the, or even their materiality but because the person who made it um had brought their lived experience as a Londoner to bear on their creative yes. practice and yeah. so the the object was simply the kind of end result of that lived experience yeah, yeah. but um going back to what you were saying about you know personal style and personal taste as a curator um there were definitely moments where I had to kind of course correct and and think am I trying to acquire this because it's the right thing for the project or am I trying to acquire it because I just like it yes yeah Um, yeah and equally there were moments where I had to approach it from the other end of that question and say I should I should be acquiring this I don't like it I wouldn't want it in my living room yeah yeah but it fits the project criteria really well and it would be a great addition to the collection yeah even if it's you know in my own view ugly yeah yeah. or not your favorite otherwise not not immediately appealing to my own I don't know personal taste um so there was a constant back and forth in my own mind between those those imperatives um and yeah definitely some of the things I acquired I also happen you know to think are, are beautiful objects and I'd love to own them myself um but I was I was conscious of the need to well I was conscious of the need to be able to distinguish between favoring something because of my own taste and favoring something because it fit the collecting criteria yes um when those two things matched up great but I had to be aware um of when they didn't yeah and why they didn't yeah what to do about it yeah yeah I guess that's kind of uh, it's one of the things that I was going to ask you about as well in how you whether you whether you approach your own things at home in the same sort of way I mean obviously you're not going to collect or have something at home if it's not something that you actively want at home Mm. there's not that kind of uh, obligation with the criteria but then when you're thinking about um sort of putting things around your home like do you you know are you still taking do you take that kind of curatorial approach of like where things are going to go or how they fit with other things yeah I would say that they do I'd I'd say that my work in museums has definitely influenced how I've well decorated and and filled my home um I have I mean you know Museum salaries are not such that I have uh, what you would call anything close to an art collection. I have a few pieces of um, ceramics that I've picked up from makers that I like. Um, I've got, you know, pictures that I've, some some of them are just reproductions, but I like them. And a few things that are just, you know, sort of materially not valuable, but they have personal significance. And yeah, I've definitely tried to think about displaying things partly according to kind of principles of visual harmony so how how I hang pictures for example yeah 
I learned a hell of a lot from technicians at the VMA yeah. in terms of how high off how, how high off the ground they should yes, be yeah. and the kind of the gaps between the frames yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, but also kind of thematically and content wise, um, yes. So when I'm grouping pictures together, I'm thinking not only do they harmonize color wise, um, content wise, but also do they make sense? Yes. So that there's not a kind of visual jar as yeah. you look from one thing to another. Um, I mean, my my home's quite colorful. Yeah. Um, and I, I blame myself for that and not my husband who I think would have it all grey and white if he could but um, but obviously as, as well I have a young child yeah. and that's added another dimension to how our home looks because yeah. there are there are toys and there are little grubby fingerprints everywhere yes. and um, new, new things find new heights yes oh yes definitely that. definitely and it's interesting because I'm, I'm trying to sort of navigate between creating a space for my daughter that's safe yeah and welcoming that where I don't have to constantly be saying no you can't touch yeah, that yeah but at the same time maintaining a space that feels like a reflection and an extension of who I am as a person yeah, yeah. um and I'm sure you know anyone with a child has to do that to some yeah. extent um what's what's actually quite pleasurable is sometimes taking something down off a high shelf that my daughter isn't usually able to reach and looking at it with her yes and oh yeah lovely I won't necessarily let her sort of depending on what it is I won't necessarily let her pick it up and walk off with it yeah but sitting down together and looking at an object and saying you know what does that feel like is it yeah. smooth is it rough what yeah. color is it she's only two and a half so yeah. she's still at that point where these kind of very basic sensory explorations are still very Key. interesting for yeah. her yeah. yeah and that's really nice it's also like that kind of thing is actually not far off museums in themselves right because you're trying to make a safe and interesting and engaging space that still fits with how you want things and also when we invite people to handle things in museums and yeah. touch things in museums you know there there's i remember distinctly looking at um this amazing um bracelet in, in the british museum and you could handle it you could mm -hmm. turn it over um it had a, a large clasp on it. You, you couldn't undo that and mm. you couldn't put it on. There were sort of restrictions yeah. to it. Um, but you still got a, a sensory pleasure and understanding of that object through, mm -hmm. the, through the sort of guided handling of it with, with the museum professional who was there. Um, yeah, it's, it's there's sort of interesting parallels, I think, between how you care for things professionally and how you do that at home as well and like how you're kind of talking about the objects there yeah um yeah. I had one other thing that I wanted to ask you about and that was when if and when you have to make the decision to sort of no longer keep or care for a sort of museum object like do you ever have to um deaccession them and and whether in your ex like what sort of leads to that point if you've experienced that so I personally haven't done a deaccession mm. Um, but I have you know, been around colleagues who have yeah. done that. Obviously, um, deaccessioning something that's formally and legally part of a museum's permanent collection is not an easy process. Yeah. And in a sense, it shouldn't be an easy yeah. process. Um, there are a lot. There's a lot of paperwork that has to yeah. be done. Uh, you have to effectively write up a justification. What I have noticed is that um, a lot of museums in there kind of documentation and object numbering processes effectively have mechanisms built in so that it's easier to uh, get rid of some things and others so um, 
you know, things might be part of a, a temporary collection, for example. Oh, okay, yeah. Or they might be numbered in a sequence that reflects that they're not part of the main collection. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even, you know, maybe they'll be numbered and documented as, you know, a box of miscellaneous items, but then those individual items might not be yes. fully catalogued. Yeah. Um, and when there are multiples of things, especially things that are mass-produced or ephemeral, yeah. it is easier to justify deaccessioning some of those. It's usually done just for reasons of space yeah. and resources. Yeah. Um, it's very rare that you will see a deaccessioning take place because a museum wants to sell something valuable yeah. to make money to fund other areas. It's, it's happened on occasion. It's happened in the US, I know. And there have been some local government museums, in, lo- locally funded museums yeah. in the UK that have um, that have mooted that because effectively the f- budget for the museum is part of the local authorities' wider yeah. budget. So yeah. they're trying to plug a hole. Um, it doesn't happen often. Yeah. Actually, when I was at the V&A, when I worked in the sculpture department, one of the areas under our purview there was the plaster cast collection. Yeah. And, of course, the, the cast court galleries have been revamped completely in yeah. the last few years. And I was actually working on that before I left. But the collection of plaster casts, such as it is, is quite a rare survival. Yeah. And it was originally much bigger. So that collection yeah. was amassed in the sort of 1860s and 70s somewhere a bit later I think the last plaster cast acquisitions were in the 1920s Mm. and what happened was that huge numbers of those casts were destroyed in the 1920s and 30s I think um, because there was a sense that the plaster cast as a medium of reproduction was irrelevant with the advent of photography yeah um this was the the so sort of cultural view absolutely yes um and it's not coincidental that around the time that the plaster cast is falling out of fashion it is when you have you know um thinkers like walter benjamin talking about mechanical reproduction and the aura of the original and the plaster cast as a concept runs contrary to all of that so um the original plaster cast collection at the vna i believe um, if memory serves me correctly, that it originally included casts of um, Indian architecture and artefacts as well. Yeah. And various other miscellaneous things. From the East India Company? Um, well, not the East India Company per se, but certainly you know, the British presence yeah. in India, yeah. absolutely. Um, and what survives today is primarily... Um, the, the European yeah, collection. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah, so, yeah. so what survives today, they're, they're predominantly casts of sort of Italian Renaissance um, sculptures and architectural yeah, features. Um, some are you know, French, Spanish, yeah. German. Um, but it's all, I think there's a very small number of Indian casts that survive, yeah. not many. Yeah. Um, and I think that. At one point, there was discussion that maybe the entire plaster cast collection would be scrapped. Wow. Um, but it is, I think it, it's something that's replicated across many of the museums that were founded in the 19th century, um, particularly those like the V&A that were intended as a kind of, almost like a teaching collection. Yes, yeah, yeah. 
Um, the Ashmolean in Oxford has a good surviving collection of plaster casts. Yeah. But similarly, those are quite rare survivals. Yeah. So um, it's interesting to think about not just contemporary attitudes to disposal of objects, but yeah. also historic attitudes, because those casts today are seen as historic art objects in their own yeah. right. Yeah. You know, they are something that was that, that were produced with a great deal of skill and yeah. care. They tell us something about the past and yeah. about, you know, they tell us something about the attitudes of our forebears yeah. towards our even more distant ancestors yes. and, yeah, and yeah. the art they were producing. Um, so deaccessioning is is not new. No. As a practice. Far, yeah. far, in fact, if anything, it's it's less common today and far more tightly controlled yeah, yeah. than it would have been, um, you know, even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, that's pleasure. a really um, interesting point to end on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. That's all right. <laughs>